Three, two, and one. How's it going, Dr. Miller? It's good. It's good. How are you? Uh, I'm a little tired. You know, we're getting closer <laughs> to finals. I'm excited for the big final you have coming that, up for that, me. That time of year, yeah. Yeah. Uh, how, how's uh, all of your classes doing? Because I know you teach multiple. I, I do. So um, originally I was teaching three courses this semester. Uh, so yeah, originally I was doing three courses um, and then a colleague needed to go on leave. And so um, I picked up his uh, intelligence or writing analytical writing and briefing for intelligence course. Um, so that's been kind of a, a new one thrown at me. I'd never taught the class before, wow. uh, but he had a wonderful kind of canvas page set up for it. It was very well organized. And so that was a, a fun one to kind of jump in with. And because it was part of the security studies minor, I already knew most of the students in there. So um, awesome. that one was pretty good. So yeah, just a lot of grading at this point, but uh, yeah. that's, that's less, that's like a lot of work, but it's way less stress than like what y'all have to go through right now. So yeah. I, 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 I wouldn't trade spots with you to be honest. Nathan, <laughs> how you doing, man? I'm doing pretty good. Feel good to be back on. Dude, it's, sure. I feel like a kid in a candy store right now. <laughs> no. uh, so we're honestly, I just want you to just dive right in and sure. just kind of tell us how you even got to UNCC. Yeah. So uh, it was a, a kind of a weirdly circuitous route. So um, I grew up in Florida. I was born in Florida um, and came up to Chapel Hill for graduate school in about 2008. Um Probably starting around 2013 or so, I was adjuncting at a bunch of different universities. So there was a point where I was teaching at UNC Wilmington, which if you've been to like central Piedmont area is about a two hour and 15 minute drive from Durham. Um, and then I was teaching, I think three days a week or two days a week at Elon University, which is about an hour the other way. Um, and then I was teaching evening classes at Chapel Hill, I think for their gender studies department. So I was teaching like a whole bunch of classes and driving everywhere we threw like three cars at that year, um, all of our old cars died basically. Uh, so um, there was a, a faculty member here who had to go on leave and he was their kind of primary political philosophy person and that's my main field. Um, so I got a call from the department chair asking if I could come and pick up his classes and I said, absolutely, it gives me a one place to work as opposed to three. Um, and I did that job for about a year and a half, um, finished my PhD, went to Elon for a year um, to teach on a visiting contract with them, and then got a full-time job here. So moved over here, uh, I guess that was about five years ago now. Um, and my wife had been working at Chapel Hill, and she was kind of tired of, of that position a little bit, so looking for something new. Um, so we, we relocated to Charlotte, which was not a place that if you told us 10 years prior, we would have like settled forever. I would have, you know, wouldn't have probably put that on my list, but um, it's been a really wonderful community and we've gotten more invested in stuff here. So um, yeah, we love it. It's great. Wouldn't, wouldn't work anywhere else. That's awesome. And so just for the record, for people that are listening, Dr. Miller has a five-star rating on Rate My Professor. Yeah, keep it up. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he's one of, I think, two or three that have Beautiful. that, um, which I think speaks volumes. And I, I'm kind of biased because I am in your class, but I think you are the definition of what our generation is looking for as oh. a professor. Oh. Uh, and I'm not blowing smoke. That's but, just, but what do you mean by that? That's so I, you, well, first of all, your lectures are engaging. Mm -hmm. You have very, very engaging lectures. Okay. The, the, the examples that you give, you know, it's not this boring monotone hour and 15 <laughs> minutes with 150 people. Um, a lot of times, you know, you see students, you know, they're watching movies or they're playing games on their phone. No one really does that in your class. Okay. Uh, it is a, and even with pack back assignments and stuff like that, mm -hmm. like it's just very engaging because you've made it fun to actually learn things. Okay, good. Uh, and I mean, I, I get excited. I mean, yeah. especially when you, you know, you start talking about the space force and things like that. Yeah. And, um, just the kind of the small conversations you and I have had, mm -hmm. um, you've always just been, I'm a very big person when people keep their yes on the table and you are that kind of person that keeps their yes on the table. Gotcha. 
that never comes back with any kind of condescending remarks or <laughs> feedback. It's always a way to be better. And I think that's what college students are looking for. Gotcha. Someone that helps them be better and you just do that. Yeah. Well, I mean, we benefit from having, I think, really exciting material in our classes. Um, If I had to teach a chemistry class, uh, presumably the people who teach that are really excited about chemistry. And so Mm -hmm. I hope that they can convey that in a really cool way. But um, for the stuff that like we've had in in our classes, I mean, it's it's hard not to get excited about, you know, conflict. Uh, I know that the sort of political economy stuff can be a little bit dry, but like Mm -hmm. monetary policy is something everybody's talking about these days in a weird way. Right. So, um, so yeah, so we, we benefit tremendously, I think, from having some pretty engaging material to begin with. Um, and, you know, I, I remember when I was in college, uh, a lot of classes that would be otherwise really awful were made better from good instructors. And so I've had really good role models to basically kind of copy and steal mm-hmm. from. And um, that's made all the difference. So I'm, I'm glad that that's working still. Is there a specific part of international relations that you just enjoy teaching, like a specific section of the course? Yeah. So um, when I was in graduate school, so my, my major field was political philosophy, but my minor field was was international relations. And um, at the time, bargaining theory was still relatively new and a lot of formal game theory was still not brand new by any stretch, but but was still a little bit more cutting edge in some ways than than it might be today. Um, so it was an exciting time to kind of get into applications and, and conflict. Um, 9-11 was one of the major <coughs> issues that got me interested in politics to begin with. And wow. so kind of thinking about in a more formal way, um, you know, how to think about uh, for example, when the United States gives aid to a country like Pakistan, right, to fight terrorism in their country, um, there are some incentives that the sort of recipient state might have to like never quite win that fight because if they win the fight, then they lose kind of the reason for getting the aid. So they have this kind of like perverse incentive structure to kind of make some measurable gains, but then also to say that they still need a little bit more. And, you know, from reading the newspaper every day, that could be like a very confusing and frustrating kind of, of dynamic. Mm-hmm. But when you kind of think about it from sort of the formal perspective, the rational perspective that we've talked about in class, like that actually lends a little bit of insight into why they're strategically behaving that way. So I think that that's a really fascinating kind of aspect of international relations to explore further. And yeah, we can apply that to a lot of different levels. Um, but I think that the part that's probably the most urgent for us today is is climate change. And we just had a talk about that yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's one of those issues that will be kind of long running for the rest of our lives, probably, um, and will have knock on effects for everything else that we talk about in that class from human rights to conflict to global economy, like climate change, I think is the big underlying kind of theme, right? And so it's it's the part that I wish I knew a lot more about, to be honest with you, but it's the part that I think is most important to kind of convey in a class like that. Why, why do you think there's a big group of people who just completely deny climate change and then people who feel like it's not as important. Why, why do you think there's that? Yeah, I, I think that that's probably, I mean, it, it might be a case of, of people just not being informed, right? Mm-hmm. So there, there might be some of that. I, I think there's probably less of it now than there would have been, say, 20 years ago. Um, I think that there's kind of two things kind of at play there. Um, So one, if we're looking at it from the perspective of an individual who, let's say, enjoys a certain lifestyle that is really carbon input intensive, um, well, nobody really likes changing their behavior super radically, right? Mm -hmm. And so if if there's some new information that I'm getting that clashes with how I would like the world to be, then just – 
you know, psychologically, I'm going to be resistant to that new information. And we know that's something that we do all the time in politics. Um, so that, there's that kind of at the, at the sort of hyper-local level. And then at a, at a broader way, if we think about where people would get their information about climate change from, mm. it's usually some kind of big institution, right? So it's going to be you know, maybe the U.S. government, maybe the Department of Defense, maybe the United Nations. And part of what we've noticed since the 1970s is that Americans in particular have, in increasing ways, stopped trusting those institutions, right? We saw this during COVID. We see this with climate change. We see this with with heaps of things, right? Um, so if I don't trust the source, then I'm going to discount anything that it tries to present to me, right? And I think that if you kind of combine those two things together, right, skepticism about science, skepticism about institutions, as well as a rational incentive to reject inconvenient information, well, then you're probably going to get a certain subset of the population that's just not going to accept that message. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's just a, a very intelligent way of thinking <laughs> because, you know, you, if you, I guarantee if you Google, you know, why do people deny climate change, there's always some sort of political reason. Sure. And I think it's not a scientific or, you know, a, a, an intellectual reason you know it's always oh they're idiots right yeah. or something along those lines right right yeah and you know like yesterday you showed the the map about the outer banks mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know and, and i think that's when i was kind of like okay you know i mean that's can you just like open up a little bit more about like what what we're facing as far as if yeah. we kind of back burner climate change yeah so i grew up surfing and fishing I, I mean i grew up you know i was born in jacksonville florida but i grew up really in st augustine um and my parents live on a small barrier island um, kind of between the intercoastal waterway and, and the Atlantic, right? So um, their dream for their little house was always that, like, I would inherit and always have a beach house growing up, right, and for the rest of my life. I, I no longer really think that that's going to be tenable. Um, and it's not just because hurricanes are getting stronger and, and wiping out, you know, areas. My, my wife's from South Florida whole areas around her family's houses were destroyed. It's not just that, that hurricanes are getting stronger. Um, it, you know, it's also that coastal erosion, in my parents' case, from both the, the marsh side, the intercoastal waterway side, and from the Atlantic side, are both kind of squeezing those areas, right? So they're at a, in a fairly stable um, uh, barrier island. But if you look at like the, the if you've been, have you been to the Outer Banks? I have. He's actually from the Outer Banks. Okay, awesome. So, can you yeah, pull yeah. up a map of the Outer Banks? So, so whereabouts are you from? I live in Nags Head. Nags Head. Okay, cool. So, so if you're looking at, it, particularly as you kind of get down to like Oak Island, right? Okay. Um, the, the, the Outer Banks get very thin, right? And they have in a more exaggerated way, right, from Pamlico Sound in the Atlantic, right? That's like an exaggerated version of what my parents are on between the intercoastal and the Atlantic, right? So what we know is that every time we have, you know, hurricanes that come through, but even just if you get like a, a really big sort of, you know, king tide, um, it, it washes out huge parts of 12, right? And that's very expensive to, to continue to replace. Mm -hmm. And at some point, People are going to either not be able to afford it. They're not going to want to pay the taxes to continue to to, to rebuild that roadway. Um, and at, at some point, probably even if you wanted to rebuild it, it would become cost prohibitive to do so. So if you enjoy anything along the Outer Banks, right? I mean, it's some of the best surfing on the East Coast. Yeah. Um, it's some of the best 
fishing, particularly in the fall, which is like right there in the middle of hurricane season. That's also when you get the mullet run that comes through there, right? So like that's that, you know, apart from you know, people going in summer vacation or whatever to, to maybe Hatteras um, or maybe Ocracoke, you know, that's that like prime time for that part of, of the state. And that's also the time when it's, it's most vulnerable to erosion, right? So that's just the Outer Banks, right? You're also looking at the same thing kind of creeping in up to Elizabeth City, um, you know, basically kind of you know, Roanoke Island, right? I mean, that whole thing that we have on this map here, uh, large sections of that, if they're not going to be wiped out entirely, they'll become so fragile that people just simply won't continue to, you know, they won't be able to get insurance. They won't be able to stay there. What do so you mean have to when you say fragile? So when I say fragile, what I mean is it might be good for a season or two, but because of the unpredictability of the, the tidal flows, um, it's going to be impossible to get insurance on your property, right? And so if you're looking at the prospect of having to rebuild an $800,000 house three or four times, probably you're not going to continue to do that for the second time. So I think yesterday you were talking about, you said, I think 10 to 20 years. Mm-hmm. And potentially the outer banks could be gone. Uh, yeah, I mean that's that's a more sort of you know on the on the nearer side of estimates, but but I would think certainly within fifty years, um, then there's a good chance that I mean within again within our lifetimes, there's a good chance that it there will be parts of the outer banks probably still there, but they'll be inaccessible, right? Or they'll be so difficult to access that people just won't at the same rates, right? The tide will be so high. Tide will be so high. The the roads will get washed out so much, right? So if you imagine, like, you know, families that have generations, right, of people who've lived in those areas where their income comes from, you know, tourism during the tourism seasons, you know, those people are going to have to go somewhere, right? And what we're increasingly looking at from both the, you know, East Coast, particularly the Southeast, so think anything around the Gulf of Mexico, you know, Miami, probably not going to be there. Um, uh, New Orleans, always at risk, right? Right. Uh, Houston at intense risk, right? So at some point, you know, wildfires out in in California. I mean, what you're looking at is kind of this this assault on the areas that are most densely populated in the United States and people will be moving inward. Are we seeing that like in the the Caribbean too? Like with, you know, Puerto Rico and Cuba and those those smaller island countries, are we starting to see them get smaller and smaller and smaller? I think you're going to see their populations declining more and more and more, right? Because, uh, you know, people don't want to live where they can't get reliable work. And so if they're worried about their power grid going out every single year, then younger generations are going to, you know, as all climate migrants do – go somewhere that's going to be more stable. See, what you might end up with then is a massive influx of people moving into a place like Charlotte. Or right? Asheville. Or Asheville, <laughs> yeah. right? Now, now think for a moment about like the infrastructure around Charlotte, right? If you've been on Independence Boulevard, right? Mm-hmm. If, you've, if you've driven anywhere on the Beltway here, uh, this is not a city that's particularly well-equipped just to handle the population that it has. So if you're imagining a doubling by the time I retire from here, right? Um, you know, traffic's going to get worse. Property value is going to get more expensive. I mean, it all becomes much more strained. And I think that's a challenge that it it doesn't manifest itself in really acute ways, mm-hmm. you know, year on year. But but that's the big structural issue, right, that we're going to have to figure out some way of dealing with. Is it safe to say that climate change, like, you know, whether if the Outer Banks kind of fade away, you know, you're talking about South Florida fading away, mm-hmm. is that going to impact – the national economy. That- oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the the, the hurricane damage around Southwest Florida, um, you know, the, the, the Fort Myers 
area in particular. You know, that's some of the most expensive real estate in the country. Um, my, my wife's, you know, again, she grew up in Naples. Um, you know, Collier County is one of the most expensive zip codes in the country. So when you, when you have national disasters declared that call in federal money to help rebuild those areas, that's, that's a lot of money. That's very, very expensive. Um, there's a lot of, of, commerce that happens in places like that then that it might go somewhere and it might not go somewhere in the United States, right? It'll certainly be devastating to like Florida's economy, right? Well, Florida is one of the most populous states in the country. It's, um, you know, not necessarily the wealthiest, right? But it's, it's a hugely important swing state. It's hugely important for politics. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, when the Everglades go, I mean, the thing they're worried about in Florida right now is like if they're going to have water. I mean, you think about the aquifer not being able to refill itself. Think about the algal blooms that 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 make it, you know, in, in, inhospitable for, you know, the, the game fishing industry down there. I mean, it's already having huge impacts, right? And it's, it's sort of like, you know, we, we talk about well, what are the effects on coal country if you get away from coal, mm. right? Well, then you've displaced, you know, a few thousand people who, again, for generations had trained themselves and, and learned to be good at that skill. And those people aren't going to, like, on the drop of a hat, one, learn how to, like, code or whatever the alternative mode of production is going to be. But they're also going to be really reluctant to leave this area where, like, their grandparents are buried, right? Like, it's a, mm. it's a cultural thing when you leave a place where you have roots, right? So same thing in, in, in South Florida, right? I mean, my, my, my parents aren't going to go anywhere, right? My cousins aren't likely to go anywhere. So what are they going to do for for work if – if the one of the main drivers of the economy, right, mm. shipping routes, ports, game fishing, tourism, right, when these things become less tenable, but they're still there, you know, Florida basically turns into to West Virginia in a certain sense there, right? And that's a problem. So I, I kind of want to shift focus onto something that you had mentioned earlier in the semester because you were, you know, obviously you had brought up Ukraine during the conflict mm -hmm. and you were talking about, you know, in states of emergency when that mo that's a lot of money being brought in mm -hmm. for our own, you know, in a state, oh, yeah. there's a state of emergency. Totally. So a lot of questions that I, I, just general conversations I have with other students is why does the United States keep sending billions and billions of dollars to Ukraine oh, yeah. that we could be using at home for states of emergencies or things yeah. like that? Um, so a couple of things on that. And, and there are other people like in the political science department who can answer the, the domestic spending part of that better than I can. But, you know, there is at least, you know, sort of one monetary theory out there that says that, you know, the U.S. can, can you know, theoretically – continue to just kind of print money, right? I mean, we continue, I mean, we have a really good credit rating. We continue to borrow money. We borrow money from ourselves. We borrow money from other countries. Other countries are happy to lend us money, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I, I don't think that it's, it's this like either or, um, so that it's like, well, we can either send javelin missiles to, to Ukraine or we can like fund our schools. Well, we weren't doing a great job of like funding our schools before the outbreak of the war. Right. right. So, so I, I'm, I'm skeptical of, of there being that kind of trade-off. I would also point out, and I, I mentioned this in, in class a little bit, but for the benefit of folks who weren't in the class, um, you know, arms manufacturing is one of the, the biggest mm. Industries in, in especially certain very important states in the United States, right? So, when when we spend the money on 
manufacturing the weapons and then sending those to a people who are in you know what what many would consider an obviously just war on their part right one that's just sound foreign policy right but also like that's a tremendous opportunity for for economic stimulus and you know places like Alabama and Arkansas that might not otherwise be candidates for you know Amazon setting up a new headquarters there or something right and so there there are some benefits that get kind of spread around in that way that, that I mean there's some perverse incentives on that right mm-hmm. um, but but you know at least with respect to Ukraine um, I I, I don't think I would accept the premise that it's uh, we give the money to them or we spend it on ourselves. Okay. That's fair, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean that, from my opinion as well, like the way I see it is that if we don't, we're also going to play a big issue in like UN meetings, right? It's going to be like, hey, America, like, right. you know, why are you guys not sending money? Like, I mean, Latvia spends 44, 48% mm-hmm. of their military budget just on foreign help to Ukraine right now. And that's, I mean, like, that's crazy. I mean, we couldn't spend that much, but the thing is, is that if we don't, we stand to lose a lot of like foreign, like kind of like resilience in the the way that other countries see us. So it's like, I mean, it's kind of the way that Japan was prior to the U S opening up. It's like, if someone like Japan was just closed off entirely up until 1866, 65 something he's, like that so, yeah I <laughs> double, <does> <laughs> double check me on that but like and people wanted to trade with japan mm-hmm. so i mean it it's just kind of like we've gotten to the point where everything is interconnected and if you started kind of start removing yeah 1853 okay um if you start removing yourself from like that global position you have like people are going to start losing respect for you and especially when we're talking about economic reliance on the dollar like that's going to play a big, yeah. big part too. So obviously you've read about what's going on in Sudan. Yes. Do you think we'll see something similar? Like what's kind of going on between, do you think we'll see like a civil war kind of erupt and then maybe the United States will have to get involved or do you think it will kind of just be left on its own? That's a good question. Um, My initial thought would be there's probably not going to be an obvious, like when you say like the U.S. getting involved, um, I I would think that it would not be something like what you saw, you know, prior to the whole sort of Black Hawk Down kind of scenario, right? I mean, I wouldn't expect that you'd probably have a a large deployment of like American troops, for example, to Mm -hmm. to Sudan. Um, We've been, you know, the State Department was very clear about, you know, saying, well, we're going to get our, our diplomats out, but also like for Americans who were there, you were told well in advance that it was not safe to be there. Mm-hmm. And so they kind of said, you're sort of on your own, right? And, and when a country says, you know, when, when, when a State Department says, look, Americans who were there, you were there kind of at your own risk, that seems like a way for them to say, well, we're not going to use maybe the presence of, of vulnerable, you know, citizens in this country as a pretext for going in and, and doing a whole lot to, to better secure that area. Um, now, what you, I'm, oh, go, ahead. go ahead, finish, please. But what I was going to say, though, is that I would think that what you're likely to see is is probably more involvement from from regional actors, and then funding or some kind of support 
kind of going from the United Nations down to those local supports to try to stabilize um, that area. Um, that would probably be the, the form that I would imagine it would take, you know, in part because especially the Biden administration is not one that is particularly adventuristic. I mean, this mm. has been a staple of Biden's foreign policy well before he was the president when he campaigned for the Senate for the first time. This is not a guy who likes foreign entanglements. So um, the fact that he's been actually so, so sort of um, stalwart in his support of Ukraine is, I think, kind of a, a departure for him. Um, but, you know, American policymakers are no doubt looking at Taiwan. They're, they're eyeing other sort of regions. And, um, you know, frankly, there's been a civil war going on similar-ish to that in, in places like Libya for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you know, the, they're limited resources, limited attention, right? And I would think that unless something happened that there wouldn't probably be a, a huge shift. Um, so you, I know you mentioned like, the Biden administration that was a staple was, mm -hmm. you know, not to get into things. Yeah. And obviously you talked about the, the pullout of Afghanistan yeah. during yeah. class. Yeah. Do you think that was kind of the start of Biden to kind of say, Hey, like we don't really want to be involved. We're not the police of the world, that type of thing. Yeah. I, I think that, well, so I, I think that with Biden, um, you have a, a president who wants to have influence around the world. It's not a continuation of, of sort of isolationism such that you saw under Trump. Mm. Um, a, a lot of what happened with the pullout happened under the Trump administration, right? I mean, the, the, the groundwork for that was laid there. So you're kind of continuing a policy that's already been agreed to. Um, and... I think it was consistent in a certain way with at least reports that you get from I – mean, it's not like I'm friends with Joe Biden, right? But, but it's, it's consistent with reports that you get from like his advice to Obama with respect to the surge in, in Afghanistan when, when he was vice president. It's – you know – these foreign wars are, are risky. Um, the public doesn't particularly like them. Um, so let's try to figure out some other way of, as Obama might put it, sort of lead from the back, right? Let's figure out some other way that we can kind of leverage our influence as a way of, of getting the world that we want. But, you know, when you think about the, the pullout from Afghanistan, um, and I don't know if you saw the reports, but the Taliban allegedly at least assassinated the leader who mm -hmm. called, you know, the ISIS leader who had called on the attack on the airport, um, which is kind of a big sort of publicity coup for the Taliban. Um, but I think that the pullout from the, from, from Afghanistan was, was obviously, um, obviously a tragedy. Um, it was obviously mismanaged. And I think that there are a lot of lessons to be learned about having sort of your optimistic assessment of, of how the world is versus the pessimistic one. And it was clear, you know, if you listen to the, you know, testimony that, that Mark Milley and other people have given about, you know, what was known about the situation. There were some people in the Pentagon who were in no way surprised that the not particularly um, robust security forces in Afghanistan surrendered. Um, and there were others who were, who were maybe a little bit more surprised that it, it they didn't hold out longer than they did. Um, but I, I think that, yeah, that's, you know, that's that, that tracks pretty well with Biden's foreign policy vision, as I understand it. So do you think we'll eventually go back to the Middle East? Oh, we're always in the Middle East. I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, we're, we, you know, we'll always, we'll always be there. Um, you know, one of the questions right now is what Democrat 
what democratic, you know, the party democratic support looks like for Israel these days, um, you know, given their own domestic tensions, I guess you might say. Um, so, but, but Israel is always going to be a, a key ally in the region. Saudi Arabia is always going to be a, a key ally with an asterisk, yeah. perhaps, depending on what happens with Mohammed bin Salman, yeah. right, and, and who's who's in the White House. Um, I would like to see opportunities for for there to be a diplomatic solution with the the Iranian weapons development program. Um, I, I think having a more open dialogue is better than not. Um, and of course, you know. Uh, and this is pre-pandemic, but the the civil war in Yemen was the world's greatest humanitarian tragedy, right? And so anything that the U.S. or anybody else can do to alleviate that would be wonderful, right? So yeah, the Middle East is always going to be hugely important. Now, whether or not we go back in and you know remove another regime in the next twenty years, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily foresee that happening, but I guess nobody probably does. So one of the things that we talk about a lot just at least between us too, since mm-hmm. the three of us are roommates. Um, mm. So we always are talking about AI. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And personally, I think we're moving a little too quickly yeah. in the AI world to Those. the point where it's getting a bit scary. Yeah. Um, and one of the packbacks that I wrote was, mm-hmm. you know, will AI cause global conflicts? <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you ever, I think you saw the movie War Games. Yeah, we talked about the it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, love that game or movie. I, I mean, that's starting to seem a little bit more realistic as time goes on. Yeah. Can you just, I mean, I'm just going to sit back <laughs> and listen. I'm like a kid in a candy store right now. I'm just ready to listen on you and AI and potential global conflicts. And yeah, AI is AI is something I'm, I'm actually looking into a little bit more for a, a maybe a longer term research project, um, which ties in Aristotle in some weird ways. But, but yeah, I, I was so as part of doing some research for that project. Just because of my own curiosity, right? Because because I do use like in you know I mean Packback is an AI sort of moderated forum, and there are some advantages there, right? Um, maybe <laughs> there there's there's some features I guess I should say um, that can be advantages and can can also not be. Um, so so with respect to like AI and conflict, uh, I, I saw a report recently that something like fifty percent of AI developers thinks that there, think that there's a ten percent chance that AI will end the human race. Fifty like percent think there's a ten percent chance that it's the Whoa. end of the world. Um, there was uh, I don't know if y'all saw it, an editorial in Time Magazine I guess about a month ago now, where a, a lead researcher have y'all have y'all seen this by any chance? No, I don't know no. If y'all read Time Magazine like I do as an old man, but um, uh, there was uh, an editorial. Might have to start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there's <laughs> a plug for Time back. Magazine of all things. Um, there, so so there's an editorial. I can't remember the name of the researcher, but he was one of those guys who was sort of foundational with with laying kind of the conceptual framework. I think for for uh, natural language processing platforms okay. like ChatGPT, and uh, so you know what ChatGPT? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so so <laughs> when he starts this this editorial, he says, "Look, uh, there's been kind of a call from some regulators in both the EU and in the states to say let's put a six month moratorium on further development of ChatGPT in particular beyond ChatGPT four. It's like okay, you've gotten to four, let's stop for six months." let things kind of catch up a little bit and then, you know, maybe see where we are. And he said that is wholly insufficient. He didn't sign the letter. He said it needs to be shut down now because the scenario that he was offering, and I have no idea how realistic this is, but this guy 
undoubtedly, I mean, he, he definitely knows a whole lot more about all of this than I could. Mm-hmm. He has this scenario, it's wild, where he says, um, look, there are labs in Singapore, for example, that can can you can send uh, basically a, a code, a strand for DNA, and they can manufacture biological material in a lab based on you know whatever you've sent them to do, right? So he said, look, here's here's the the problem, right? If these things become sentient in scare quotes, right? If it becomes a thing that can think for itself and it can outpace us, it's going to outpace us very very quickly by a lot. Are you talking about the biological? thing that uh, yeah so what he's talking about in short is this thing's going to be a lot smarter than we are and it's going to figure out all kinds of ways of doing things around the world that we wouldn't have predicted here's a scenario it sends uh dna code directive to a manufacturing facility in another country and it like makes itself a meat body like it, ma- it like makes a, yeah. it makes it, it makes one. It make it gives itself like a corporeal. Are you, are you, but are you body. talking about like a functional? This is hum- what the guy's saying. Human style body, basically. Or maybe like, it'll be like a werewolf. But it, yeah, he was like, it can manuf- It could. It, it, it's not beyond the realm of possibility, at least by his lights. And again, I have no idea how realistic this is, but it's one that he throws out there where, where it's like it could make it could make itself. It could give itself a body. And then so he's so he's like, look, this isn't you know you're not fighting the Terminator. You know, so let's say there is a conflict. You're not fighting like a Terminator. I don't know if y'all have seen the Terminator movies. Mm-hmm. I assume most people have, right? So it's not like you're fighting like a, you know the 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 whatever you know T800 or whatever, right? The, right. the Arnold Schwarzenegger one was, mm-hmm. right? It's not even like you're fighting like the T1000, the, the liquidy yeah, guy, the right? Ones, yeah. It's like you're fighting like an alien civilization. I mean, this thing is it, it's it's not like you're fighting one thing. It's 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 everywhere, always, yeah. everywhere, and, and 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 so he was like, look, the, the risks. If there's a, a, a non-zero chance of that being an outcome, then yeah, you shut the entire thing down right now. Right now, my own view is maybe naively not so severe. Right, my, my thought, and I had a really wonderful discussion in a class um, over the last few weeks. I, I teach a, one of the LBST twenty three hundred one courses, so everybody has to take one. And um, my my class is usually just focused on ethical dilemmas, but the question that I put to the students for the last like month is um, ChatGPT is a program that, at least for writing intensive classes like mine, might just be a way for us to sell goods to people more effectively, right? If you can commercialize, it's going to write really good copy. And it's like a cheating machine, right? You can plug in my prompt, right? Yeah. And it can generate something that's going to be at least for short assignments. And if you pay for it for longer ones, it's, it's a cheating machine, right? So I said, okay. So when I see this thing, I kind of freak out a little bit. But students have what, what you know, Marx would call epistemic privilege, right? Y'all know things about what it is to be students mm-hmm. that I don't know mm-hmm. as somebody who's not a student right now. Mm-hmm. So I was curious. I said, well, like, what is y'all's take on this? Like, how are you using it? What do you know about other people who are using it? Where is it, you know, how are you using it in different kinds of classes? And what I challenged them to do was to come up with a policy, either for colleges or for the university or for the system, about how to, how, you know, what, what should our policy about ChatGPT be? And what they all came up with was what I thought a very reasonable one of saying, you know, in some classes, like your econ classes, math class, you know, it can be a really helpful study tool. For other classes, philosophy, history, et cetera, it, it might actually short circuit 
right? A lot of the things that we're actually trying to get students to do when you write papers, which is, yeah, we want you to get your subject-verb agreement right, but more than the point, we want you to, like, go read books. We want you to be curious about things. We want you to research things. We want you to have opinions about Japan opening right. up in 18, what was it, 1853? <laughs> yes, right? We want you to know those things, yes. right? And 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 the worry is that if you rely on a program that's just generating stuff that looks real, that maybe it'll be more difficult for you to have the critical faculties to know when it's giving you good stuff and when it's giving you BS, right? right? So, you know, in, in terms of whether I think chat GPT is going to destroy the world, the answer appears to be maybe, right? But there might also be a lot of other really good uses that we can have for it. We just need to think, I think, a little bit about what the goal is for this. I think this is my biggest critique of this stuff is that we develop it because we can, mm-hmm. But we don't really think about what we're beyond the ability of, of you know the curiosity. Can we do it? I don't know what we're aiming at when we develop these things. And, and this is the distinction that Aristotle makes between cleverness and, and wisdom. Right? Cleverness, you're smart, you figure things out, you invent things. Wisdom is doing it for some virtue, for some good. And I'm not really sure I know what the what the good is that ChatGPT is being so we for. Nathan and I have talked about Neuralink. Mm-hmm. You know Elon mm-hmm. Musk's. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and yeah. when you hear him talk about it, it's a little strange, but <laughs> the, 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 I, I, I like the medical side of it. Sure. That, yeah. You know, exactly. you could pro- potentially help paralyze people walk again sure. or something like that. Um, I'm not a fan of microchips in the body. That's, yeah, right. you know, we've talked about that. He, T's big on it. He wants to get all yeah. microchipped up. But, you know, you like you've seen in uh, Sweden where mm-hmm. they have the they have their wallet and their keys and imprinted in between yeah. the yeah. skin between their thumb yeah. and their pointer finger. Personally, the, the the worry that I have that we've talked about is where's the fail safe? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not just for Neuralink, but for chat GPT and right. all these AI things. Right. You know, there's now there's security robots in Uptown that roll exactly. around. Mm-hmm. What What is the fail safe? And is it a manual type override or is it something that AI can override itself? Well, I, I think that the worry from the, the you know, AI skeptic side is, well, anything that we can do, presumably this thing's going to be a lot smarter. So yeah, it could probably get around that stuff, right? I think that, so there's a couple of things I have with like the neural Neuralink thing in, in particular, right? So on the medical side, um, it, it, my, my worry there would be if you had effectively something that could work like a prosthetic, that that would diminish resources and attention on basically not making our built environment one that's a deeply ableist, right? I mean, if you think about like how the ADA has, mm-hmm. has you know, had us yeah. change society in such a way that being paralyzed should not be an impediment to living a flourishing life, then the worry would be, well, look, I mean, you can put this computer chip in your brain and, and then you've solved it. So if you choose not to do that, well, then that's on you and we're not going to build any more ramps. We're not going to make anything accessible for you, Which, right? Like, uh, that would be a worry. You talk about uh, poverty dis- or income disparity. Exactly. I mean, the third world would just be... Lost but, exactly. Just, well, well, income inequality in this country, right? It's already bad enough, but you know. yeah, that that would exacerbate things further. So that, that's one worry that I have with that, and then the other is with this kind of biometric biometric scanning kind of stuff. The, I think the failsafe is the conversation that you have before you develop the thing, and mm-hmm. the way that it's being presented, at least as I'm aware of it now, is well, you it's convenient. 
right? Who, I mean, yeah. Like, yeah. it's like your smartphone, right? It's 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 convenient. So yeah, let's go for it. Doesn't this make your life better? Yeah, hey, neat, right? And now I've consented to something without really having considered it very far. We don't read the terms and conditions on anything, right? Mm-hmm. Well, this is like a, an Can opportunity oh, yeah. for us to start. To, yeah, exactly, right? This is an opportunity for us to start saying, well, let's write. Let's have more democratic engagement in writing the terms in, in, of, 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 of use for these mm-hmm. kinds of things. And, and we're not doing that. We're not reading the terms that are out there. And so the worry is, well, now you've got a bunch of people who have traded, you know, their their liberty away, their privacy away. They they tr- they traded away something intangible f- for some convenience that mm-hmm. maybe later on actually you start to attach a cost to. And now, yeah. you know. So do you have a TikTok? <laughs> I did. I've gotten rid of it because. Because of the congressional testimony, I was like, <laughs> I "Yeah, was like, you know." I was like, yeah. I was like now, "Now, my wife, my, my wife is Can on TikTok. She's yeah, my, my wife's been on TikTok for 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 a long time now. I um, I basically kind of free ride off of her account, right? So I enjoy, I enjoy her whatever the algorithm is that gives us like the cat videos and stuff. Like they're funny, they're great. My cousin sends me weird stuff all the time. I love it. It's like I think it's a cool way for people to get really creative and and to produce really neat things. As far as it being on my phone, like I, you know, I, I no. Can thanks. you look up the terms and conditions? Can you pull that up? They're relatively so, like surprisingly close to a lot of other apps anyway. Yeah, and, and it's just think, where it's going. So yeah. it, it was on Joe Rogan. He, mm-hmm. you know, he was he kind of blew it up and hit that clip yeah. of him reading it sure. made it bigger. And so what I did was I just went back, and so you can actually see um, when it, I don't. You may have to go back and look and see if you can just type in Joe Rogan yeah. TikTok because I think they zero in on that one that I'm looking for. But a lot of what they they said, yeah, I think it's on this one. So go, I think it's all the way down. Yeah, right there. Right here, go right up. Comment. So this right here where it says, this is TikTok's privacy policy. Sure, yeah. We collect certain information about the device you use to access the platform, such as your IP address, mm-hmm. user region, mobile carrier, time zone, the model of your device, your screen resolution, operating system, app and file names and types. Uh, so all the apps and f- all your file names, all the things that you filed away on your phone, they have access to that, keystroke patterns or rhythms which means they know everything that you type. Yeah. And so a lot of that is actually the same terms and conditions on like Facebook and Twitter. Yeah, totally. And a lot of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so we've just been handing over our lives and data and privacy for a long time, not just with TikTok. Sure, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think that there's – so this is actually – so there's a couple of things. I have a whole thing on Joe Rogan. Um, I I think it's hilarious that he's – a big deal, not because of any particular position he has, just because of right. where I. Did y'all ever watch the show News Radio? Are y'all familiar with the show News Radio? Is that where they were like, "This is News Radio," or is that? It was a sitcom in the nineties. Oh, was it? And okay. it was where Joe Rogan got his national start. He was the like handyman for the news station, but it starred a guy named Dick Fo- or uh, Dave Foley, um, who'd been on a Canadian version of of Saturday Night Live, sort of, but it was kind of weirder and better, called Kids in the Hall. But but Joe was like a, a recurring bit character on that show, and now he's this 
like thought leader. And it's just mm. weird because it was my favorite show in the 90s. And if you told me in 95 that like Joe Rogan was going to be the guy who like breaks <laughs> the hair. world. Yeah, when he, he's the guy <laughs> who like hair. breaks the world on, on Twitter. He's on, also on a TikTok. comedian at that time. Yeah, yeah exactly. He's, he's a stand-up and stuff like that. But the, the fact that he's had as much influence as he has is just like one of those weird turns of, of life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but to, the, to, the, to the point about like kind of your privacy and stuff. So um, – Smartphones came out when basically I was in graduate school. We had cell phones when I was in college, but but there were no cell phones to be had. But I graduated in, I guess, 2007, so like the iPhone would have just come out. Um, Did you ever have a Nokia? Or one of like the, uh, yeah, oh yeah, I had like the little flip phone kind of deals. Oh yeah, I mean Blackberries. But you know, I, I never had a BlackBerry. My wife had a BlackBerry. Uh, I, yeah, but it would be like you would lose it for days on end, and it was like who cares because everybody still had landlines or, or whatever, right? So, it wasn't a huge deal. Um, but but you know, with the proliferation of smartphones, I think that like y'all's generation is much more sensitive to the ways in which these things are tracking a lot of information that you would just in principle, not want to share with the rest of the world. Where I'm more concerned is people, well, like my parents' age, for example, right? Um, not my parents in particular, but, you know, folks of a, a slightly older generation where you don't understand what any of that stuff is and you're you're surrendering quite a lot of that privacy, um, you know, be it to an American company, to a, a, a foreign-held company, to a government, mm-hmm. to CMS, right? Like to, to, to whomever, right? Or MCMPD, maybe CMS, but, but <laughs> CMPD, right? Um, that, that you're surrendering kind of all this information to folks in a way without realizing what you're doing, right? And I, I think that if the TikTok thing sort of makes people more aware of that, then that's probably a good thing. There was a, I got a notification from Google today that there's a, a NC bill on the table that gives police officers yeah. the power to go into your phone yeah. without a warrant. Mm-hmm. So obviously there's an ethical argument to that. Yeah. But do you feel that that's eventually just going to, I mean, they're already technically kind of doing that anyway, right? So I think that there's a difference between, so whether they do it now or not, doesn't mean that, you know, if they do something now, it doesn't mean that they'll do it in the f- that they should be allowed to or will inevitably be allowed to do it in the future, right? So we, we, we kind of got a sense of this. Like I said before, 9-11 was one of the big things that got me interested in politics. And in particular is the Patriot Act. Mm-hmm. And if you kind of look back at the the original, which it gets reauthorized without a whole lot of debate, you know, every time it kind of comes up in Congress, but it gets modified a little bit. And, you know, one of the... One of the aspects of of the Patriot Act that is an important kind of template for this is that when it's when it's passed, it's in the wake of an emergency. There's not a lot of debate around it. Nobody really reads through it very carefully. And then, you know, suddenly people do start reading through it carefully. Lawyers start reading through it carefully, um, and they raise awareness about that, and they kind of simplify it in ways that lay people can understand. Um, and then we put pressure on members of Congress to try to rewrite the rules in such a way that at least specifies the terms under which, you know, police or Department of Homeland Security or anybody else, right, can kind of go through and and sort of invade your privacy. Now there isn't an explicit constitutional right to privacy, um, but it's all but there. Um, and I, I think that the the thing that allows the police or anybody else to invade privacy like that is us not being aware that they're doing it. And then when we are aware of it, not putting enough pressure on policymakers to make them stop doing that, right? Because it's one thing for them to be able to collect it, another thing for them to be able to, to make it admissible in court, 
right? So the courts have a huge role to play there, right? Policymakers can can reframe that. But then there's the technological capacity, right? And then the the, the other kind of global risk, right, is that while maybe you know, Charlotte Mecklenburg police can't do it, maybe American police can't do it. Mexican police could still do it, right? Israeli police could still do it. Uh, Iranian police could still do it, right? And so if you think about something like the Pegasus program, right, um, that, that basically works as a sort of stealth, uh, uh, you know, version of this on steroids, um, you know, not used to our knowledge in the U.S. for our own journalists, but has been used in, you know, Russia. It has been used in, in a number of authoritarian regimes. Again, when we develop these things, what's the point of developing them, right? And mm -hmm. if the point of developing something like TikTok is not just to entertain people or give them an opportunity for creativity, but really to train an algorithm on how better to manufacture information that might, yes, be weaponized to, to sow you know, confusion in our elections, then, yeah, you should stop that, right? Um, but I'm not you know, in charge of <laughs> do you, do you, So I know you said that like our generation has become more sensitive to yeah, know, privacy yeah. with smartphones and stuff like that. Do you think that that's because of people like Edward Snowden kind of blowing what the government was doing wide open? Y'all would, would know better than I would. Um, when I teach about Edward Snowden in class, people are like aware of the name. They don't really know very much about PRISM. They mm -hmm. don't really know very much about the disclosures. Mm -hmm. um, so, and even to this day, I'm not sure that a whole lot of people really understand kind of what PRISM was was doing. Um, but I, I think it my, – my suspicion is that like it might have something to do with that. I mean for some people it certainly is, right? But I would, I would venture to say that for other folks, um, it's the fact that as sort of you know mobile digital natives, so to speak, um, you've been aware of those – not just the – the ways in which these technologies can violate your privacy, but also kind of the behaviors that they induce, the ways in which social media makes us feel like crap about ourselves and other people. Um, and it's just kind of like a rejection of that whole platform, right? And so you get like, you know, increasing numbers of people. And who knows if it's going to be like a short-lived trend. But, you know, 20-somethings uh, opting for the flip phones that I had when I was a 20-something as opposed to using, you know, a smartphone, right? I kind of see that as sort of a y'all's grassroots reaction to, yeah. to that. And so I think you mentioned before you do some work with, like, DOD, right? Uh, well, I do some work with ODNI, okay. um, and so occasionally we kind of venture over into the, the DOD side of so, things. So, I mean, aren't they're tracking stuff with satellites and all that kind of stuff. Sure. And then, of course, you know, we talked about the Space Force in class, and, yeah. and then that's something I've always, I just <laughs> yeah. always thought it was cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Buzz Lightyear was my favorite cartoon character growing up. So, cool. you know, now that there's an actual space command, yeah, like yeah. you said, it looks a little Star Trek-y at first. Yeah. Well, it, it was one of those things that was, like, panned when it was yeah. first unveiled, right? Yeah. And then I, I went to a, a, a talk um, that was part of an ODNI project, and this guy was like, oh, no, 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 space is... This is the new spy cyber. Like this is actually super real, and it, it's, it's incredibly important actually for our do you, uh, so security. Obviously, like the the deeper we get into AI, mm -hmm. right? I mean, yeah, the the space force is. I mean, obviously, they kind of keep an eye on AI to an I extent. Would, yeah, correct. Yeah, I would assume so. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, do you think that that will continue to be important? Like, you know, things yeah. like global conflicts potentially because of AI. So here, because so so that's a really good question. So so here's the here's the trick, right? Suppose you're uh, you know you have the guy who wrote the 
the editorial for Time, and he goes before Congress and he gives his testimony. He's like, "Look, these things are going to make you know armies of indestructible meat machines that are going like, to take over the world. Shut it all down, right?" And Congress goes, "Oh God, shut it all down, right?" And we all, you know, we've all seen the congressional testimony for you know anything to do with technology. We know how well the modal member of Congress kind of fully grasps that yeah. stuff. So let's say they have like a full reaction to go, oh God, yeah, shut it all down. Well, well that doesn't do anything at all to limit the ability of other states to, to invest in these things. Now, in particular, and, and again, I've, I've really tried to emphasize this in class, um, I, I emphatically do not want a conflict or a war between the United States and China. Like that would mm-hmm. be, that would be, devastating and a number of registers. Mm-hmm. Um, they are a, a rival, they're a, a partner, right? But but there's a rivalry there. Um, and something that last year at least um, in a talk, it wasn't the, it was a deputy director, I believe, for the CIA, said that the major concern for the intelligence community, at least at that time, was the ability um, that they've tracked at least of, of China's ability to uh, intercept raw data and then its ability to develop AI systems that can analyze that data to make it into actionable intelligence. Like that was the big technological leap. It wasn't so much the ability to like download the internet every day, right? You said the deputy director? It was, it, was, it was somebody pretty highly ranked. You would need to look that up. Um, it was like one of those talks I listened to like at the gym, right? But um, uh, I believe she was giving it to, it might have been CSIS. Um... I can't remember exactly where, but I remember that was like the that was the major concern. Right? The concern was China, and specifically, it was the emergence was of Stacey Dixon. Uh, it wasn't Stacey Dixon. Um, no, she's the she's the uh, deputy director for ODNI. Nice, nice, nice lady, by the way. Have you met her? Uh, I met her uh, twice. It Don't might have been Kathleen it might have been Kathleen Hicks. Maybe. Would you know her face? Um, I would. I, so I've I've been on like a I've been in the room when there was like a virtual call with Kathleen Hicks. It might have been her. Um, also seems very nice. Kind of off topic. Who is a high ranking politician that you've met? I haven't really met very many high ranking politicians to be honest with yeah. you. Yeah. No, that wasn't like a thing I've ever really done too much. But yeah, I don't like get into politicians too much. I have like real skepticism about like calling the cult of personality. I think anybody who runs for office has to have like a lot of ego and which is cool. You know, it's great. You need folks to do that. But like, that's not, I've never been one to hang out with, with those folks. Um, but, um, that's awesome. <laughs> but, I fully but, understand that. But, you know, but, but, you know the, the, the point was that it was like, you know, China has this ability, yeah, to, to, to collect lots of information, but also their training systems that are going to be able to, to analyze it, to decrypt, to, to, to weaponize this stuff, right? And so if you have a responsible national security program, it's also going to have to be able to keep pace with that technology. And how do you do that without falling into the risk of it turning into – you know, this thing that gets out of the box and then ends humanity. And that and that might be a way in which it could exacerbate conflicts. Now, it could also avoid conflicts. This is something we talk about with intelligence all the time, mm-hmm. right? There's a reason that Eisenhower allowed Soviet spy planes to fly over areas where we had weapons on display, right? I mean, the more information in some ways, not altogether, right? But but sometimes a little bit of transparency can help to to mitigate tensions, right? And and so there's nothing necessarily 
like inherently conflict laden about that, um, but, th- but there is a huge security concern there, and I think that that is where you that, that therein lies the rub, right? Um, and then certainly going to what we were talking about with Space Force, you know, when we talk about just it being kind of this, you know, going to I guess maybe that's why they have the. Sp- Star Trek-y kind of look, right? Yeah. But it is kind of this other frontier and the norms around how to, to, to navigate that space are not yet defined. And they're taking place with very terrestrial kinds of, of you know, state tensions. You know, there are a lot of opportunities there for accidents to happen and bad things to happen from the accidents and conflicts to follow from that. When you say terrestrial state, Oh yeah. So, 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 you know, it, it's, if you have a rivalry between India and China, right. And that's going to manifest itself to a certain degree in how they also conduct their space operations. Right. So if we were talking about the example that we had in class the other day, India using an anti-satellite, you know, missile, right. To, to blow up a satellite of their own. Why are they developing that? Well, in part, probably because they're worried about China, <laughs> right. So, yeah. so the, the worry is that then you, you wreck the planet, you know, in mass, right? Because of, of, of a problem that you have here. It's not like moving out into space makes us suddenly like one species that's going to go out there and hang out with the aliens. Yeah. I think that was kind of the misconception when Trump first started the space force was, you know, these are space cowboys that are going around chasing aliens. Yeah. Yeah. And I think people kind of, thought that I mean that would be kind of cool in its own right yeah. I mean they're called the guardians the guardians of the freaking yeah, galaxy I mean, how cool is that you know yeah, gotta, <laughs> but, gotta market these things so do you think that with the space force that kind of opens up a whole new world of potentially being able to find some sort of extraterrestrial yeah maybe but god can you imagine so you know, and in, in, in the sci-fi movies, right? So you have like the whole first contact thing, yeah. right? And the aliens come and then all the humanity like joins together and suddenly like national boundaries don't matter anymore. Mm. Like, I, I don't think that's how that would play out, right? Mm. I mean, imagine, you know, the, the aliens are like what we imagine them to be in the movies, right? right? And then they meet somebody from America, right? Or they meet somebody from Russia or they meet somebody from China, and they're like, okay, well, take us back to meet all of your other people. Like, imagine the conversations that, like, that first group is going to have. Like, let's say you have, like, a conflict going between, like, India and China, right? And then, you know, an alien meets somebody from one of those countries. It's not going to be like, oh, yeah, no, we all get along great here. And we're all, like, we're one species and y'all are one species. And go like, no, nah, no. Nah. I mean, like, like. So almost like a, a counterintelligence type thing, like where they'll it's like oh we hate the Americans, you know? Yeah, like don't trust them because they're, they're you know poisoning well against us, right? I mean, like you know in the in the movie, we come together and we fight them and we yeah. stand together or we fall together. It's like I think it's much more likely that they just kind of show up and we kill everybody else, so right? What, because so we're what, trying to be the top. So people. what you're saying is, <laughs> we should not let them go to North Korea. For one, right? Maybe, maybe I don't know. I don't know what their their jam's going to be Iran, like. right? I don't know what their jam's <laughs> going to be like. It might, maybe it'd be good to go to Mecca, you know, like like to, to check it out, you know, go go to the. No, uh, this is a personal question. You don't have to answer this, but do you think there is extraterrestrial or some sort of intelligent or non-intelligent life outside of? The world. Oh, oh, God, yeah, of course. Because it'd, it'd be hubristic to say no. Yeah, I mean, I, these guys laugh at me, but like, I, I don't believe in the little green man with the antennas, right? Like, I, I mean, I mean, who knows? There might be, but I, I think more of like, there's got to be like a cockroach running around on the far side of the moon. It's or a bacteria, something. some kind yeah, of, right? you know, hyper 
cool, you know, non-carbon-based. So you guys heard it from the thing. best professor at UNCC. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like probably, I would, I would, I would have to imagine that there, there would be. Maybe not in our solar system, right? But but mm-hmm. there's, it's a huge universe. There's got to be something out yeah. there. And, and plus, you know, in the whole like sort of you know infinite, infinite universe theory, right? And so, uh, if not on in, in this universe, then probably in another parallel universe. Like yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. There has to be gotta everything. Got to be. We yeah. got to see what's inside the pyramids. What? You could probably do that without the use of aliens. Yeah. Did you yeah. did you uh, see what Elon Musk said that like he was talking <laughs> about uh, he's like I I don't believe in aliens cuz if there are they sure are subtle, but if he found like a 1-inch cube of titanium mm-hmm. like underneath the pyramids, mm-hmm. he'd be like, "Oh yeah, that's aliens for sure." Cuz I mean, I guess that that would be like super hard, right? I, I don't I don't know. I, 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 so is he suggesting that the only proof for extraterrestrial life was that Egyptians didn't build yeah, pyramids? Right. Like yeah. that's super racist. Because we, <laughs> <laughs> we were looking yesterday at like the – I mean so and I'm sure you could go down a crazy rabbit hole about the Egyptians and, and building the pyramids and stuff like that. Sure. Because we looked at the margin of error and it was like 0. 0.0. 0.0. Five, five degrees. degrees. Yeah, yeah. That's good, good uh, math. Uh, and I mean, it's two zeros. I thought it was point zero yeah, zero five. I think it's point zero, zero five, five, right? Yeah. So I mean, I, I don't know, but either I'm way, sure I think the, I the think Egyptians made them. I think the pyramids are kind of like a second-rate example of like alien buildings. The moment yeah, you go to I, Mesoamerica, yeah. I think I, sure, I think yeah. there's better examples in Mesoamerica where like there's still not plants growing between like. That's I, how tight the stuff so is. So. I, so, so there's so there's two dimensions to that, right? So there's there's a little bit of the the the, the race one, right? Yeah. But then there's also, and I, I get this a lot because my my dissertation was actually on ancient Greek political thought, mm-hmm. and and so and I didn't get too much into like ancient Greek mathematics, but but this is something that kind of comes up a lot. You know, we we tend to assume that like the ancients were dumber than we are in some way, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so. We can't imagine that, especially if we can't do something, then they couldn't have done it either. And, and there's this you know, huge continuity of of inventiveness and of ingenuity and of, yeah, like marshalling tremendous resources to a singular task that yeah. I think we don't give the ancients sufficient credit for being able to pull right. off, you know? Uh, I think we kind of think the same thing about like you know undiscovered tribes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, because yeah. I think sure. I didn't. I don't know what the official statistic is, but I think there was like several thousand undiscovered tribes, or something like that. Uncontacted. Yeah. Uncontacted. Yeah. Uncontacted. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's not like it's either dumb. Know, yeah, it's not like they're dumb, <laughs> right? right? I mean, especially yeah. if they establish their own language. Their own language, you know. their own their own medicines, their own yeah. customs. I mean, they're just as complex as 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 More anybody than else. One hundred, one hundred uncontacted tribes. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, like you said, it's not like they're. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, these are human beings, like yeah. like everybody else is a human. Being. You know, they they probably think you know it, it, it's ridiculous that we're walking around with these little devices in our pockets that we go, oh god, it's tracking everything I'm doing, and yet we get up every day and we put it in yeah. our pocket, right? Like that's a dumb thing to do. I'd right? have to so, vote that their lives are actually better than ours. <laughs> well, maybe they're maybe they're like ours, right? Some days are good and some days are bad, right? I mean, like, like this kind of like happiness on a general scale, like they just. I think didn't we joke one time about. Taking a drone and like airdropping a 
airdropping a phone an in iPhone there. or like a Bluetooth <laughs> speaker. There, there's a there's a Tom Hanks movie I think that has that as the premise. No, it's the premise actually. Of the gods are crazy, or the gods must be crazy. Or the I can't. I, it's been a long time since since I've seen the movie. But we obviously yeah. have the capabilities to to see those tribes, right? I th- internationally think so. So there are a lot of treaties actually governing how you can make yeah. contact at both the international as well as domestic levels. I know, especially in Brazil. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, because I mean, obviously they're, they're you know, an object of, of study for anthropology, but at the same time, you don't want to reduce them to being objects of study, right? So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, there, there are a lot of rules around how to make contact with 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 those folks. But again, I mean, I don't think that they're not as, you know, the God, they've got to be better at so many things than I am. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, like, like most people would probably, but um, yeah, I, I think that when it comes to a lot of this stuff, we kind of go, well, um, you know, they, they were very old and so they can't do it. I mean, imagine if, if somebody thought that they would, you know, only believe in extraterrestrials if there was some evidence that they had built the Empire State Building or something. I mean, it's, it's just. So where do we go from here as as a country? What do you think we need to do in the next five years to, you know, make sure that we're not getting into conflicts and, and things yeah. like that? Yeah. So in the next five years, I would say probably the biggest thing is to uh, de-escalate tensions with, with China as best as possible, um, to try to uh, take advantage of the ceasefire between Saudi Arabia and Iran, um, to try to get more humanitarian aid to Yemen. Um, and to to try to reorient some of our institutions around global structures that have sort of domestic pathology, so to speak, right? So like probably the biggest challenge that touches on pretty much everything that we've talked about politically speaking is, is income inequality, right? Like it's an enormous problem. It's an enormous problem for this country. It's an enormous problem around the world. Um, I, I think that, you know, focusing on how we can avoid – that you know, getting some kind of cooperative arrangements going with states that we currently have some tense relationships with, I think is probably the best route. And I think mm-hmm. probably the best way of going about that is to proliferate the points of contact that we have around the world, right? So, so you know, don't retreat from globalization. You know, lean into it. Have more than just one source for manufacture and distribution of goods. Um, I think that that's probably. That'd be really ambitious for five years, right? Uh, in the meantime, I think kind of passing a lot of the uh, uh, you know agenda items on things like um, addressing childhood poverty, that actually worked really well um, while they were in effect. I think like full congressional funding um, in this country for for programs that that deal with that, I think would, would go a lot a, a very long way as well. Guys, do you have anything? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how you think about this, but the way I look at uh, the major countries, major power players around the planet is that a lot of them are resembling kind of like sick men type qualities. Like I feel like America's dealing with a lot of economic type, you know, illnesses as far as like where we're seeing the dollar go on the global scale mm-hmm. and then China being on, you know, maybe the fringe of potentially a population crisis mm-hmm. with, you know, yeah. basically a vertical tower for yeah. population distribution. Um and then Russia, I mean, now losing more and more of their men more than they have in the past, you know, 70 years. And yep. they've just kept with that trend, just demolishing their male population. Um, so not replenishing, you know, kind of their population. I don't know how you feel like 
Because, I mean, we've seen what countries tend to do is they all feel like they're approaching that sick men yeah, type situation. I, I think that, like, a, honestly, like a more universally open immigration policy would probably mm-hmm. deal with a lot of those kinds of problems, yeah. right? So I, I don't worry, like in China's case, for example, I don't worry so much about – like a radical population decline in the next like near term. I mean, it's it's a it's yeah. a longer trend, right? That yeah, they're definitely. concerned with, right? But the bigger one would be like, well, what happens when the bottom falls out of China's property market, right? And yeah. then suddenly the world's second largest economy tanks. Yeah. I mean, there's this simplistic way of going. Oh, cool, we're for sure number one because number two just like you know bit oh, the dust, but that actually drags everybody down with yeah. it, right? So shoring up a lot of those kinds yeah. of institutions, I think, is is important. And this kind of sick man mentality that you're talking talking about of, of, you know, a lot of that is coterminous with a rise in authoritarianism, a rise Mm -hmm. in populism, you know, and like democracy, you know, it it sort of makes it seem like it's a silver bullet, but more democratic, more robust democratic institutions are really good ways of forestalling those things turning into conflicts. right? Right. And so I think just kind of, you know, showing that democracy can work, right. I think is a really important task yeah. for the for the current administration and for whatever administration comes next. So in some regards it kind of resembles like what we saw post World War One, pre World War Two, where yeah. rise in the belief of, you know, fascism, national socialism, including socialism yeah. on right. regular. Like showing that we're not the Weimar Republic, right? Like showing that we right. can like we yeah. can have these disagreements, we can have these differences, but we can also identify right. practical challenges and solve those practical challenges. Yeah. Like that's I think, you know, really important. And I, I think that like, you know, to, to go to the point that we're making about Biden before, uh, not to like just you know, dump on him, but like Biden, like that was always his thing too, right? Was being kind of a pragmatic guy mm. who could identify. You know, I don't agree with all the policies that he always endorsed, right? But that was kind of his his thing, right? Let's let's do kind of a more centristic kind of politics, a little bit less performative, a little bit more pragmatic. I, I think that that is that would be a good role model for you know everybody on every side of the aisle to to show and then if you can get the same thing going in you know i mean europe's yeah. going through its own economic malaise right now you know mm-hmm. so so being able to deal with some of those issues there as well i think would yeah. be important yeah i'd say in regards to that i think one of the issues that i think this is probably like a across the board especially in most of the developed world is um you know an issue and the idea that we can't fathom that we don't know everything yeah. some regards yeah. and yeah. so like i feel like some people have a really hard time envisioning mm-hmm. any form of political system or any form of economic system that could potentially be outside of the realm of what we already understand utilize or have utilized before yeah a little bit of you know like, sort of epistemic humility right yeah. like a little yeah. bit of sort of like hey we you know we, we you know and this is like, yeah. again you know which we would need another hour to kind of probably go into but uh, you know the, the basic approach of pragmatism is one that is open to alternatives and then trying them out and seeing what works and abandoning what doesn't and embracing what does. And yeah, yeah, I think that that is a kind of anti-ideological way of thinking about this stuff. That'd be really good. Well, Dr. Miller, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. I mean, it's been a complete privilege and a pleasure uh, for these guys. I mean, like for me, I've just been sitting here listening. This could go for hours as far as I'm concerned. We'd love to have you back on. I'd love to. Yeah, Um, that'd be great. You know, I know the summer's coming up. uh, Yeah. That that frees up some time. I'll be around this summer, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Dr. Miller. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for